there, everyone. Welcome to Zeitgeist, a show where we talk about all the latest TV and movies while we listen to the latest music. I am Jordan Conrad, and joining me is my Asian pal, finally for the first time in the States, <laughs> it's Nivel Boz. What's up, man? Hi, everyone. I'm back in the States. And just for your information, even though he said I am Asian, and I am, I am from the continent of Asia, I am not Eastern Asian. I am Middle Eastern. So today we are going to be talking about two, respectively, later in our episode about One Piece. And I think we might get a little spoilery into that. What do you think? A little bit because we're going to talk about the manga and about the adaptation. So I feel like because the live action is an adaptation of a very well-known manga that has been going on for years upon years upon years, I think it's okay that we get just a little bit spoilery. So if you're a fan of One Piece, then this is the episode for you. And we will have that in our doobly-doo, the timestamp for when that starts. But first, we are going to be talking about a Korean-American dramedy. And that is in the form of the show that came out earlier this year, Netflix's Beef. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about Netflix in general, and specifically Netflix as the core of this actors and writers strike that we were just in. Obviously, the podcast was kind of stumbling through the strike, but we did take it a little bit easier. We weren't posting quite as much, I guess, but we weren't also like on a radio silence, which I know some podcasters did. And I gave my thoughts on Barbenheimer last episode. I threw that right at the top of the episode, but I wanted to give you a chance now, especially now that we're nearing the end of the actor's strike, or they signed on it and now they have to vote for it. Anyway, what do you feel like is Netflix's role in this? Do you feel like they are kind of the arbiter, or do you think they're just one minnow in a big sea of fish and a sea change of media? I think they represented the sea change many, many years ago when we transitioned from network TV to streaming. They were the first ones in the game, so they dictated how the game operated. It was sort of a no man's land when people were trying to understand how to regulate streaming. And Netflix had carte blanche on how to do that. That's why residuals, when you compare them, which is was one of the big problems and issues that was talked about in the strikes, was that in network TV, when you get residuals, you get around uh, per per season of a TV show uh, between like $10,000 to $30,000 if you're an actor or a writer. It depends like how deep your role was in the project. But that's a still sizable amount of money money that you get from a project you did a while ago. And it's something that basically helps you keep a stable income, right? Because being an artist is anything but stable. But at least in the time of network TV, it was at least somewhat stable. But streaming changed that. Residuals uh, from Netflix were much lower than residuals you would get from network TV. They would range literally between, unfortunately, to like $100 to $1,000 and not much more than that. Streaming residuals were pretty pathetic across the board. I was on a set with a lady. She is a very prominent actor. I, I won't name drop her on a public platform, but she was very prominent and she was on a show on Disney Plus and I acted alongside her. And she mentioned to me that she had gotten only $20 when her television program, and it's a show that both you and I know, Niv, was posted to Disney Plus. 
only $20, and she was in, I believe, every episode. Now, that, I think, is unacceptable. And that's, I think, why we had this long, long strike. Now that we're at the end of it, it's crazy to think how far we've come, but also how far we still have to come. Because you were lucky, Niv. You were able to get AI protection, what I call person-first language, which is really the ideal. And actors were not able to get that. So to be clear, when I talk about person-first language, what I'm talking about is a definition in the contract saying one actor equals one person. And without that kind of language, you are able to bring in an actor that isn't actually there and slot them in. And with these studios, they think, I believe, that it's still a money issue and that if they're able to just pump enough money into the system that they're able to effectively get around a lot of the things we've taken for granted in our system. And I'm interested to see how Netflix might do that due to the fact that they are, I think, predominantly the most algorithmically fueled streaming service. But I think going back to the other issue of the strikes, which was AI, the idea that AI could replace writers and actors in a movie or a TV show or any type of other artistic project. I think, yeah, writers got a better deal in terms of AI than actors did. And I think it has to do with pre-production versus post-production, right? Writing is such a pre-production job because that's sort of the spark that lights everything up, right? You need to write the project in order for the project to even happen. Usually, there are some anomalies out there, unfortunately, but usually you write a script and then it gets produced. But with actors, right, they're in production and then they are affected by post-production. Writing does too. But what I'm trying to say is the reason AI affects actors in a different way from writers is because an AI tries to write a script, whereas an AI affects an actor through CGI or special effects. And that's sort of the problem that, you know, they can take a voice of an actor by essentially stitching up a bunch of different voices he or she has made and then stick it to a project and not credit them at all. That is special effects. That is something that's done in post-production. So the protection of that becomes sort of nebulous to studios out there because they're just like, oh, this is just special effects in post-production. Uh, we're just doing our job. We're just trying to solidify the movie and it has nothing to do with AI replacing you. It just has to do with technology changing special effects and making it easier to manipulate for a movie or a project, which is a little ridiculous. I think it should be more regulated. But I think that's the flashpoint here that you were mentioning of how far we've come as an industry, both actors and writers and other even sectors of the industry. And we're trying to push for change and we have been able to push for change. There's a lot more change that needs to happen in order for us to truly and fully get there. I heard someone recently say that the time in which the most interesting material comes in the film and TV world is when the studios and the executives truly have no idea what's working and they don't know what they're doing. And I think we may have just come out of one of those places, but I fear that in the next couple of years that the studios are going to become a little bit more sure-handed and try to go back to the stuff that was working maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So you get a lot more stuff like a Grey's Anatomy or like a Roseanne or like Everybody Loves Raymond. Something a little bit more low price for the studios, but also something that isn't as volatile as something like Beef which we both watched for today's podcast. I think it's a unique show. I really think 
I can only really compare it to one thing. It feels like an indie movie, but it doesn't feel like just any indie movie. It reminds me of Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love. Have you seen this movie? Yes. It has that same level of chaos. It has that same level of underlying rage. Now, of course, the main characters have rage, but do you feel the same that the show itself seems to have a unique point of view? Yes, absolutely. And it's because it's trying to talk about that unspoken stress you feel every day. Because we live in a world that is has become, this is an interesting topic, right? The idea that we are taught how to speak, especially in, in liberal circles like PC culture. And I think that a lot of that rage comes from the idea of you, you are taught to speak a certain way. And that unfortunately like affects you in terms of being able to take out that stress. And I think in one end, it's the correct way. The idea of being able to be polite and being able to present yourself in a, in a certain environment is really important. But I think it has to do with how much harder it is in our world right now to just say what we're feeling. But haven't those social contracts always existed? They have, but at the same time, they've changed in different ways, right? The way we speak now, the way we let the world know what we think is through social media. That's not a conversation. It's basically a reel or a story on Instagram you know, or a tweet on X. Like people don't see that emotion. People don't understand where, couldn't understand where you're coming from. Even if you write the most eloquent thing ever on X or on Instagram, because you're not there in the room with them. Yeah, it can generate empathy, but never a true level of understanding. And I think that's what beef does through that rage by pushing the characters to their limits where they, all they do is go into destructive rage. But at the very end, the two characters that exhibit the most destructive rage are able to understand each other. You mentioned understanding, but I think that that is the thing that beef as a journey is, is the movement from not understanding someone at all to understanding them as well as you could. And going through that, you have all of these ups and downs. And in fact, the act of collision the act of rage, the act of fighting that they do, because you have these two characters, they both are people who come from a very different place, quite literally. They both come from various suburbs of LA. One of them comes from Calabasas, yeah. the other from Reseda, I think. And that is reflected by where they live. Calabasas is considered to be sort of the like Kardashian area somewhere where you have a lot more space you have a lot of ritziness calabasas and Reseda is much more middle class Reseda is a little bit more kind of open and i didn't actually know that there were any asian enclaves out there but the creator of beef lee sun jin he has a particular relationship with these areas. And so that's why he decided to set them in these specific areas of the larger LA. And what's interesting about this show is that it actually was inspired by his own road rage experience. The pilot was originally a little bit different from what I heard. He made it so that it was from Danny's perspective and then from Amy's perspective. And then throughout the edit, it changed and he decided that the impact would have been a lot better if it wasn't that. And it's really interesting to hear that he was able to be vulnerable, especially in a public setting, to bring this to the world. But it sounds like he had a conversation with an A24 executive that was able to channel 
this idea and the executive goes, well, uh, Lee Sin Jin, he says, you should try to pitch this. You should try to make this into a show. And that's exactly what he did. And so from that comes not only just a single moment, he didn't write this moment into a movie. He turned it into a TV show. And I wanted to talk about that as well, because I see this as something that would have made a perfect movie, especially before the age of streaming. I absolutely would never have seen this become a series. You couldn't imagine a series like this in the 90s or the 80s. It just didn't exist. So what makes this unique to a TV series? What do you think drives this as a TV series? Would you have liked to see this as a movie? I could see how it would work as a movie and I would have enjoyed it, I think, very similarly, but I think I would have enjoyed it and I have enjoyed it more as a TV show because it's about upping the stakes each and every time and you're able to be even more true to the characters by exploring them because you're given more time. I think that that's the true difference between a movie and a TV show, or at least the most important difference, time. And the time spent on characters and basically how much you get to explore said characters and the characters around them. Because it's not just about Danny and Amy, it's about the people around them and who they affect with their disastrous choices throughout the show and how their lives are affected. Even the Asian American identity is affected or spoken about in this show. And I think those are a bunch of big things that require time. And I think that even though this could have been a wonderful movie, it was a more mature choice to make it into a TV show. That's true, because you would lose two of my favorite characters on the show, which is Naomi and Isaac. Isaac being the sort of meddling character played by David Cho, who I don't believe has done much in the way of real acting. I mostly see him on TikTok, on these like podcasts similar to Joe Rogan, although maybe not always Joe Rogan, but he's that kind of type. He's a unique force on the show. I think he's one of the most interesting people. I hope I am saying that right. Uh, David Cho. Yeah, one of the more controversial figures on the show. Like there was a controversy with him when this show came out because some things he said resurfaced. It sometimes happens when a celebrity gets prominence. So I think that is important to state. But yeah, he was a force of chaos, like his character that added dimension to both Amy and Danny's dynamic because he represents like someone who's truly criminal. He's a character that is the cousin of Danny, and he has like a certain power over him throughout the show. So I think what I'm saying is it's really interesting because Amy and Danny are each other's antagonists, right? Because they're both almost equally protagonists, like they're both main characters of the story. But they have their own, even though their relationship to each other is so antagonistic, they have other antagonistic forces that affect them as well. For Danny, it's his cousin, and for Amy, it's her husband. Right. They have relationships that they're feeling a little insecure in. Yeah. And that antagonism, I think, is mainly from themselves in many ways. Certainly in the case of the character played by Stephen Young, Danny. I love Stephen Young, by the way. I did want to just shout him out. He has been a really interesting performer. He was in a movie called Burning that I think is seminal. I think it's amazing. He hasn't done a whole ton. I think he has really continued to gain prominence, and I really see him doing 
a lot more. His big movie was Minari, right? Which was uh, a big Oscar contender, another A24. He had his breakthrough in in The Walking Dead. He played Glenn, which was an important character in, in that show. And he's been doing that for so long. I think that's mainly why I haven't seen him in much. The indies he's been in, he stands out. Yeah. Like a like a true star. As opposed to Ali Wong, who has a very different career. But you know, he's definitely on the rise. In a similar way that Ashley Park is on the rise. I saw her movie this year. Um, it was called Joyride. Mm-hmm. I always think of it by its working title, which I can't say on this podcast, but it is a very intensely funny and irreverent comedy in the same general sphere of like crazy rich Asians in the sense that it wants to take Americans and bring them into an Asian context and kind of see how they work and interrogate their sides of duality, which I think Beef does as well. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. But particularly Ashley Park, I think, brings a unique perspective to her comedy and it's really great to see her here she doesn't do that much but naomi is a really really intense character in the later episodes and brings a different level to amy who is generally just really awful to naomi so naomi is a character that is interesting because she's just a friend to amy there are characters here that on the surface are just very basic right the cousin the brother the husband what the show does really well is that it takes those archetypes and then pushes them on an even deeper level in terms of like how stress between or conflict between another person could be upped every single time if it's not talked about i think this show would not be able to exist within its conflict if the two characters just sat down and talked to each other. But they're just unable to. And that is the theme of this story. We live in a polarized world right now when one side is too PC and the other side is too vitriolic to actually like be able to talk to each other. That's why we are so polarized right now. Again, being a liberal myself, I prefer the PC over the vitriolic. But at the same time, you don't want to be emotionally stunted. Exactly. Emotionally blocked in because it is so difficult in a world that is so nuanced and so busy to be vulnerable to just be able to be a mushy gushy person right and so these people have built up a way to survive both of them amy certainly has reasons that she needs to survive in the context of working with the upper middle class and the middle class and the elite and the one percent she has this wide range of clientele that she's working with and predominantly the one percenters that she really has to be careful about how she's interacting and with danny he doesn't have access to that and he is just trying to figure stuff out on his own well he's really pushed right and this is going to be a slight spoiler i highly recommend you watch beef but in the beginning the almost like the first few shots of the show he's returning uh, like grills and we later discover that he has tried to buy those grills in the past and return them multiple times because he keeps going back and forth between committing suicide by essentially like putting the grills in his room and then having the smoke from those grills kill him and it's because he himself struggles with the world around him sort of with the way he needs to behave in order to function in this world because 
because he deals with a lot of emotional issues and he feels like he can't contain himself. There's a lot of people like that out there that feel suffocated by the world, by how it pushes us to conform to a certain way. By social contracts. Exactly. And I think that stress and sort of anxiety doesn't just feel very real. It feels very dangerous, especially in a context like this. How do you feel about in specifically their experiences as Asian, as Korean Americans? Because I think the Koreanness of the show to me is largely invisible unless you really look at the cast. But it's interesting because when I think of Korean, I think of Korean Korean. I think of South Korea itself. And when I have had experiences in America, I feel like I look at it and I go, well, this is just a few, in terms of the food, it's just a few flavors away from what I would just eat on a regular basis. You know, like we had, you and I, Niv, had Korean barbecue the other day. Someone, I think, as we were walking out mentioned, one of our uh, friends in our party said that it was just like charcuterie, but it was just a little bit of a, a different spin on it. Maybe I don't agree with that completely, but I do think that they make a point there. Wherein I also was watching a episode of a Bourdain show where a famous Asian comedian, a famous Korean comedian in L.A. brought Bourdain to Sizzler to try the Sizzler buffet in Koreatown, which is this important cultural touchstone for him as a Korean American. And yet... Sizzler, to me, indicates the most American-American thing ever. And insofar as it is the cheapening of a thing that already exists, which is a steakhouse. Yeah, and Sizzler, for me, also impacted me in Asia when I grew up in Thailand, because that was where we would go. And we wouldn't even eat the steaks. We would go specifically to the buffet. The salad buffet. And this is what Bourdain dined on. Yeah, and we, me and my dad would have cream mushroom soup. That would be it. We weren't interested in their entrees. We were interested in that buffet. And it's funny because even though you said it's American, it's not. If I remember correctly, it's actually an Australian company. So it's actually not even American food. It's like Australian food, technically. So Sizzler is Australian and Outback Steakhouse is American? Yes. Love it. Yeah. But what do you feel about the Korean representation? Do you see it being something relevant, something really vital? Do you see there being a particular tone to it? Or would you consider it more of an Angelino-American show. I think it's a mix of all those things. If we're talking about the context of stress and the way you need to present yourself, I think nothing is more true when it comes to that in regards to immigrants. Because I think immigrants feel that stress or minorities feel that stress more than anyone in the United States, right? Because they themselves need to present themselves in a certain way, in a socially acceptable way, because there's that pressure of not having privilege to escape that. Minor Minorities aren't given the same privileges as majority Caucasians do in the United States. So there is that pressure of like, okay, I need to act a certain way in order to be able to get something that is usually denied me and my minority. Of course, nobody thinks about it that way. But what I'm trying to say is minorities, if they act a certain way, that could be not only a stereotype that harms them and, and their collective identity, but it's also this thing of where they need to fight even harder to get to where they want to be. I mean, that's like one of the big issues in America right now, critical race theory. It's not just about African Americans and the institutions that affect just the African American minority, but all minorities in the United States. Well, and you only have to look 
a couple of decades ago until you see some really heinous things happening to Asian Americans. I mean, Asian Americans, when they first were migrating into the United States, were doing so predominantly because of certain types of labor. And they didn't have the same upward social mobility that America promises. Well, most of the time. It's also important to note that the show doesn't just hint at this. It refers to it directly, right? There's a character played by Maria Bello called Jordan Forster, and she is directly tied to Amy's character because she's essentially the person that Amy's trying to impress. She's the one percenter, and she is Caucasian, and she's the epitome of privilege in the show. Amy is quite privileged when you compare her to Danny, right, who is another Asian uh, minority in this show. But then when you have like the one sort of white character in the show be extremely, extremely rich and towering over all the other characters in the show, that refers to what I just said. The idea that privilege is a theme talked about in the show, and it's not just a theme that is talked about in the show. It is something that affects minorities in the United States and, to be honest, a lot of other countries. It is something that is growing more and more as time goes on. The idea of unionization has been coming to a front this year. And so something like beef is definitely speaking to our times. It is something that is weird, I think, in a unique way. It's definitely sure-handed. That's the thing I've taken away from it mainly is that it's really hard to critique it as a story beat by beat because going through each individual episode, it's hard to look at it as just one episode rather than an iteration in a larger story. And that's why I said earlier that I thought it was definitely the kind of work that requires it in maybe movie form. But at the end of the day, what they're able to do is extend it and really take it and draw it, draw it out and tell these individual human stories. But I think it is the most Netflix show in that way yes. because it is a serialized story told over eight episodes and it does that it tells that story as a whole journey and it's like a novel in that way and so when i look at it i think it's a show that while i'm not entirely sure i fully understand it at all times i don't know if it's necessarily a show that was made for me as a white man even a white man who lives in la i do think it is a seminal work of television my question for you is do you think that this kind of show is a thing that Netflix will sustainably look for as time goes on? Or are you seeing this as a sort of piece of sand in the larger cultural movement? Because in a moment, we're going to be talking about one piece, which I see as a marketable material above all else. And on the other hand, with beef, it's a very personal story. It's a very singular story. And it's one that can confound someone even like me who does this for, uh, you know, a hobby, if not for a living. To answer your question, it should be something that Netflix continues to do. Because to me, beef is the answer to the bear, to who lose the bear. Because they're both very similar in the sense that they hyper-focus on the conflict a character undergoes, that personal conflict a character undergoes. And I think that's... That's why it's really important for me to talk about this topic, that the world that we are in has so much conflict in it right now. It's so divisive that because there's so much conflict around us, that we as creators and artists are looking inward 
at the conflicts bubbling in ourselves. And I think The Bear and Beef are shows that are emblematic of that and are so important to that because everything around us is noise. What truly matters is, is the struggles we're going through in response to this noise and those stressful situations, those horrible, horrible things that are happening, like they affect us, but we don't really get to talk about them in a conducive and healthy way. We're taught to talk about them in either a correct way or like an incorrect way, so to speak. Correct and incorrect is relative, but at the end of the day, we are taught to that we need to say it in a certain way. But these shows put these characters at the forefront, both the bear and beef, in the sense that these characters are really, really struggling and they are taught not to speak, but eventually it's too much and they're forced to speak. They're forced to lash out. They're forced to affect those around them in a really powerful and destructive way. And that, to me, is not only a much more interesting type of conflict, it's a far more realistic type of conflict that we need to delve in as artists. That's true. I mean, at the end of the day, human experiences are the things that drive all stories, not just artisanal stories like beef. You have to have the same kind of rage and the same kind of interpersonal conflict when you're making a superhero movie in the same way that you're making a story between these two people. I mean, it needs to be in an ideal world that way in almost anything with that kind of action stakes. Now, beef has elements of action. It definitely has moments that feel just as much like Ex Machina as it is Punch Drunk Love, PTA's movie. And I would really say that it is also like neither. I think it's completely unique. It is very singular. And I think it's something that even if it might not be necessarily your flavor, it's so important to have these kind of stories. And I think it is something that has so much care and so much thought put into every single moment. And it's so idiosyncratic in that way. All of the characters feel fully realized that it's something that you can't deny the quality on. Of course. And I think that it's also important to note that the characters that operate in this world, and we've talked about this in other episodes of our podcast, want versus need. What a character wants motivates them. It's the thing that pushes them towards, you know, the rest of the story. But what they need is the thing that changes them. Both Danny and Amy and almost all the other characters in this show want specific things. They are fighting to get what they want. And what's interesting is a lot of these characters get what they want, but they are still not happy because getting what you want doesn't equal happiness. A want is an external thing, right? The noise that I was just referring to, the Although external. Danny has an external want for social and personal niceties, things that are going to make his life materially better as someone who's very poor. He wants to be able to be a little bit more comfortable and not always live on the edge. What would you say to somebody like Danny in that regard, though? Well, I would say that at the end of the day, it's not what he needed because the way he got there was not necessarily the correct way. And I think that's the important thing to state here because it goes against what he needed. What he needed was to fall back on the relationships he already had instead of trying to get relationships through, unfortunately, not very uh, innocent means. And I think that's what I'm referring to. Again, the external, the noise is the want, right? It's the thing that the characters, they see the world around them and they're like, okay, the world is telling me I should want this. Because answering that on a deeper level, the reason he wants those niceties is because the community around him, the world around him has told him like that's the only way you can be 
socially and mentally stable. And his need, though, is to find a person that already feels like him, a person like Amy, who also feels very trapped by her world, who's also trying to lash out from inside her in order to to find someone just like her. And that's the thing. These two characters fight throughout the entire show, and they cause so much destruction to themselves and to the world around them. But really, this show could have ended like this if they just sat down together and realized how similar they were. And there's one of the more beautiful parts of the show is that they do that a lot. They always get close to just talking it out and then life just gets in the way. And I think that is so real that, you know, there is a lot of moments where we could just sit down and talk and then something unfortunate happens and ruins it all. The whirlwind of life takes you over and you're not able to just be in your body and be in your space and just stay calm which is so frustrating, but unfortunately part of life most of the time. That said, speaking of a whirlwind, we've got quite an eventful show coming up in our second half. We're going to be talking about the other Netflix program that was really, really, really popular this year, besides Wednesday, I guess. (laughs) But in this case, we're talking about One Piece, the adaptation, the live action adaptation from Netflix coming out in late summer, uh, early fall. Of the manga One Piece. And, but it's not the manga, it's the live action version. Yeah, yeah, it's the live action adaptation of the famous manga by Echiro Oda. And with that, we're going to listen to some music and come back to talk spoilers about One Piece. Hi again. If you're hearing this, it's because you haven't decided to listen to this episode on Spotify or Mixcloud, which means you aren't taking advantage of my sick DJ skills. Think about it. Okay, back to the show. And we're back. I hope you guys enjoyed all that music. We're going to be talking about One Piece now. Just a reminder, we do have some light spoilers coming up, so be aware of that. Niv, talk to me about, as a writer, creative control in the world of writing, because when you have something really unique, it's easy for it to get away from you, right? Especially in the case of something like One Piece, but you really see it in almost anything. You could definitely see a whole different, much less interesting version of beef. Yeah, I think creative control and sort of letting go of that creative control is always tricky. It's really hard as a writer, especially as a writer that came out of specifically playwriting where you have a lot of inherent control. Like as a playwright, you know, if your script gets produced in a theater, you have final say on the script. Like a director can't change it, a producer can't change it, unless you as a writer give your go ahead. That's not the same with film, and that's sometimes not the same with TV. With TV, it's a little bit more mixed because because it's a writer's room. So it's a lot of different point of views. But with films, you know, the people who are actually in charge of the script are not necessarily the writers when it's like a big script, a big blockbuster. It's usually, you know, the producer, the writer, or other executives in the studio, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I know for Marvel movies in particular, there are usually like five writers on that script, and maybe three of them at most get credited. And that's just how the business works at the end of the day. But I think in regards to One Piece and Beef, I think Beef 
in particular, there was a lot of creative control with Lee Sung Jin because it was his project. Whereas a show like One Piece that is adapted from a very famous like manga or, you know, graphic novel, it's a little different because again, it's not necessarily an original idea that's immediately being translated into a TV show, but it's adapted from not only like a manga, but also an anime that's still running. Both of them are still running. And I think with Echira Oda, because uh, the manga artist and writer who created One Piece, I think it was really important for him to be part of this process of this live action adaptation. Not just because he's regarded as one of the most hardest working artists in Japan, but because of his style. Like One Piece is a very vibrant and broad world with a bunch of characters, too many to count at this point. And it has an enormous amount of heart to it. That I think that's one of the reasons it's so beloved, because it is able to be so full of joy and be so full of emotion that people are just drawn to that world. And I think he was aware of that. And he it was so important for him to translate that into the adaptation, which required that he had a lot of creative control because he wanted to get it right. And one of my favorite things he said in an interview when he announced like this adaptation was, look, I don't want to be too old to do this. I want to be alive, you know, and strong and, and healthy and in the prime of my life so I could do this project, so I can bring One Piece and my world to live action. And there are other writers are out there that don't get that chance. I know for a fact, like we were, I started this point with uh, theater. You know, there's a lot of playwrights who are no longer here and their plays are done all the time and they're changed all the time. But you know, when they are alive, that's when they still have some creative control over their own art. And so to round it off, I think it is essential for the writer, at least in the earliest points of, of that art, to have creative control so they can shape the art into truly what they want it to be because it is theirs. But I think there's also a time where you let the art be itself and let it be changed and let it be adapted because that's how you make art eternal by just letting it evolve. Right. Evolution and looseness often create stuff that feels real and feels unique and feels singular, right? And that is something that I think Oda did create initially when he was making One Piece. I mean, you can fault the live action for a number of things, and you'll hear me do so throughout the episode, but the one thing that you can't say is that it doesn't rely on the anime, that it doesn't take from the manga, that it isn't interested in the source materials it came from. I think the source materials are a very important text for the live action, for this new iteration. And so people who are fans of the original product are going to find this, I think, really interesting because they are directly translating these animated characters onto the big screen. So it's really tied to the anime. The story is complex, as you've mentioned. There are tons of characters. There are tons of ideas. There is a great deal of lore. And so in order to make it into its own work, you really do have to rely on the anime. And in order to make it work, you need to be piling the information on pretty deep. You know, it's a lot to take in, especially early on. And I definitely had to keep a very close eye on the screen in order to really understand what was going on. But I do think that the reason why One Piece has succeeded as an anime is because A, it's interesting and singular and fresh, but also because it does reward that diving in. It is so lore-focused, and Oda 
is so interested in building lore that feels like One Piece that the people around One Piece are constantly being rewarded for digging deeper into that lore. Now, it is also a huge change from the culture that we currently have, and I think that's important to note. When you have a anime like One Piece, it's probably in line more so with something like shonen, something that is recognizable in the culture. It is 100% shonen. But it's also nothing like we have here on account of the fact that it's a superhero meets pirate story. It's rather unusual, and it has a lot of unique lore, as I've mentioned. I would say the thing that I could compare One Piece to most is Pirates of the Caribbean, and yet they're very, very different stories. I think the only real connection is that there are the people on land, and there's like the Elizabeth Swan type character who's represented in one character and then you have the Luffy and Luffy would obviously be the Jack Sparrow of this show. But to call Luffy and Jack Sparrow of a kind I think is very reductive because Luffy is an entirely different character trope. So even that it's it's hard to pin down. My issue though is that because it is so reliant that it starts to feel like cosplay of its own idea and it starts to mix the realism and high concept design. And so the reason why I have found it a little bit hard to stomach as someone who was not a fan initially of the material is I don't think it rewards diving into in the same way if you are coming in now because the lore is so deep and so long that this re-adaptation does feel like they are rehydrating it and bringing it to a new audience and trying to see if they can catch some people. And the fact of the matter is, I think they will, and I think it does, because it is so conceptually interesting. And that's going to bring people in regardless of execution. It's just that, for me, somebody who loves things that are so off the beaten path, I wish that they had taken a little bit more time to nail just the things that make the original source material so inviting. And I think it takes itself too seriously at times. I think it doesn't understand the inherent comedy. And unfortunately, I think that's a mistake. My question is, having been recently introduced to the source material, what do you wish the adaptation did in order to match the source material? I have watched a little bit of the anime with you, and the one thing that I took away is that there is this sense of playfulness, and it feels much more like a comedy in execution on the particular arc I saw. It has these really light moments, it has these scenes, these disconnected scenes where the characters go into a place, hijinks ensue, and they leave the place. And that kind of, first of all, I think the structure is really solid, really sure-footed. And when I'm watching the Netflix show, the show feels much more in line with what people in the production side are interested in, which is serialized. They want everything to matter, they want everything to be grounded, and they want it all to move like a stream from one pebble to the next. And so when you're worrying about the pebbles underneath the river, you can't go into the flow. And I think that was what I was missing as a viewer when I was watching the live action show, that even coming in midstream, I felt instantly when I was watching the animated program. 
Well, what's interesting for me is I compare it a lot to another Netflix show that is also an adaptation, and that's The Witcher. The Witcher is also like one of those really big IPs that people know, not necessarily because of the books that you know the original idea came from, but the video game by CD Projekt Red, that the video game studio. And I think that it's an apt comparison because The Witcher in particular is a show that tries to adapt the source material, but the writers of that show make their own creative decisions because they're trying to appeal to a larger audience in ways that they think is the correct way, the more westernized way. But fans of the books and fans of the video games and new viewers alike are united in the fact that the show feels aimless at times because it's trying too much to be something else. Whereas One Piece, I think, a lot of people are appreciating new viewers of this live action show and old viewers of the anime are really appreciating the live action show because it is staying true. And whatever thing that isn't necessarily true to the original anime or the manga are things that are still true to, to the world itself in the sense of just taking a character that has already been established in the manga and then you're just bringing him earlier to the start of the story. So you're just deepening the story, sort of like The Last of Us did when we covered it a couple of uh, months ago. It stayed true to the video game to such a strong point that anything that was new was just like essentially deepening what was already there. So you mentioned that uh, Oda was closely involved with this. Oh yeah, very closely involved. So he had his source material and it worked up to about, I think, midway through the first season, if we're going from Netflix's standards, right? Uh, yeah. Or close to the end of the yeah. first season of like of we, the original show. We talked about like sagas, yeah. right? When we did Chainsaw Man and Demon Slayer. We are about to end the first saga. Like we were about to reach the last arc. The last time I described this, I don't even remember how, how I metaphorically said this, but saga is like, like the big sort of chunk it's like the book versus a chapter so arcs are chapters and sagas are books and was oda particularly stringent on the adaptation or was he able to move things around because i know we watched logtown which was not included it was not included because i think it was too expensive like it, the show got too expensive at that point i believe it covered the live action show covered like five arcs and at that point logtown was the last one but it's also i think the sh one of the shorter ones of the saga there was a lot of conversation between the two showrunners of the live action show, Matt Owens and Steven Maeda, with Echiro Oda. And I think they were the ones that brought the initial ideas of like, let's bring characters you introduce much later in your story to the start of the story. And I think Echiro Oda was a little apprehensive about that idea. But I think through conversation, he warmed up to it. And there were some things that he flatly said no. And there were a lot of times where they showed him early cuts of episodes episodes and he would be like all right i'm okaying this but you need to reshoot this which was incredible because they catered to his every creative choice matt owens and steven maeda very much worked with etcher oda to achieve his vision they were shepherds yeah they were shepherds vision. exactly which is a crazy thing to say of showrunners because they themselves are the peak of creative control in a tv show but we were talking before about the marvel situation and how there are a lot of different ways to run a studio when you have someone like Kevin Feige 
overseeing this huge arc of material. Sometimes you do need the showrunners to take a back seat and listen to the people who are disseminating this information for you. And with Oda, I mean, I see that almost like when you think about before Lucasfilm was sold to Disney, you had Dave Filoni's show running the TV show Star Wars, The Clone Wars, but the creator of Star Wars, George Lucas, was still in the foray giving notes. We talked about how expensive these big projects can be. And the more expensive a show is, the more executive control versus creative control happens, right? Or at least that's what we expect with all like these big issues plaguing Warner Brothers and Disney. But One Piece itself was not an inexpensive show. It was quite an expensive show. Each episode was around $17.27 million to make, which equates to $138 million just for the first season so that's the budget of like a marvel movie like a cheap like a cheaper marvel movie something closer to the marvels rather than something or a marvel tv show yeah it actually reminds me of the whole situation it's a long-standing thing in hollywood where one piece takes place in the water and Waterworld was one of the most expensive and biggest failures. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with the course, 90s. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Waterworld was a big failure. Obviously, it does have its fans, but it was a total disaster. And even Steven Spielberg warned the team of Waterworld because he had problems filming Jaws back in the 70s. So this has been, filming on sea has been something that has been tumultuous for ages. And now finally with the moment of CGI, you're able to bring the water to you. And I believe they had a soundstage where they were working with. Yes and no. They worked mainly in Cape Town in South Africa. That's where most of it was shot. And I saw some of like the original videos of pre-production and of production. And they were building the ship. Like the ships themselves are not CGI, they're real ships. Are they on the water? Yeah, they're on the water. So that would likely take up a lot of those costs, yeah. but obviously then you have the other aspect, which is CGI, right? Yeah. Computer effects cost a lot of time, a lot of money, and the show One Piece can't exist without CGI yeah. because of the superhero aspect, because yeah, Luffy fruit. is the arbiter of the gum gum fruit, one of the many devil fruits. Yeah, which, and what is a devil maybe, fruit, Jordan? Oh, you're going to have to explain that one. <laughs> So we touched on Shonen earlier, and we touched on it when we did Chainsaw Man and Demon Slayer. Shonen manga, or like action manga, has a power system, and it's unique to each sort of manga there is. And Dragon Ball, it was famous for those power level ups, going like Super Saiyan. Super Saiyan is an example of that. For Bleach, it's the swords, like the Zambakuto, which is like Shikai and Bankai, being the differentiations of power there. For Naruto, it was a Jutsu, and for Demon Slayer, it's the styles, and for Chainsaw Man, it's the devils. For One Piece, it's something called a devil fruit. And a devil fruit is how Echiro Oda likes to call it, is an encapsulation of human desire. So it's a fruit that gives its eater, its consumer, a special ability that's tied to the fruit. Luffy has rubber-based abilities, so his fruit that he consumed as a child is called the gum gum fruit. And I believe the only other fruit shown in the first 
season is buggy's fruit, fruit. which is the chop chop fruit, which allows him to separate himself. Yes, Buggy the Clown, uh, played by Jeff Ward. Best actor in that show, in my opinion. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But he plays the character that disconnects himself. And effectively, his character is very, very similar to any other killer clown, which in America, I feel like that trope is almost worn to the bone. Buggy's always been an interesting character, especially in the manga and in the anime, because even though he appears to be like that killer clown stereotype, he himself seems so powerful and early in the story because he's one of the first villains Luffy sort of has to contend with. But in reality, he's actually the world's greatest scam artist, because even though everybody outclasses him in terms of power, he still manages to catch up to them purely by his luck and purely by his wits. And that's what I really appreciate about Buggy, because he's the ultimate underdog in the story. And I feel like Jeff Ward actually encapsulates that immediately when he gets on screen. If how many episodes to date does the anime have for One Piece? I believe they just went over a thousand not that long That's ago. Correct. Yeah. I have the stat here. It says 1077, 1077 episodes. That's that? quite a lot of material. That's wrong because obviously the episodes have increased since the last time. Currently, it's 1,084 episodes. So talk to me about that. It's obviously a show that bears a lot on its source material. I think it struggles to hold up the source material at times. And I think that's partially because Oda was so present and such a driving force. It's hard to be able to make your own show, especially in a live action setting setting when you have somebody who is so particular. And I think it shows, to be honest, I think in times there is a substantial effort from the writers and the actors and the team. But when it comes down to it, I think you can see the sweat, you can see the effort. And that means that the show just isn't rising all the way. At times, you almost feel like the show has been written backwards. Now, in one particular case, the Marine, the good character from the show, Kobe, do you want to explain to me a little bit who Kobe is? So in the first episode of the season, we're introduced to our main character, Luffy, who wants to be a pirate. And then he meets a sailor who has been captured by an evil pirate, and his name is Kobe. He's around the same age as Luffy. And it's interesting because the show does a really good job where they show Luffy wanting to become a pirate and then Kobe wanting to become a Marine. So they're both going on completely opposing paths, but they're still friends with each other. And it creates like this dual dynamic where they're both the protagonist of their own story, which is something that's sort of present in the manga and in the anime. But this is a change I appreciate because Kobe is not featured as much in the manga and in the anime as he is in the live action. We really get a sense of the Marines, particularly because of a marine who's added not added but just brought earlier to the story to this particular section of the saga garp right garp who is luffy's grandfather but also the marine who is mentoring kobe and chasing luffy throughout the first season so that brings me to this point i was coming towards which is kobe is in a moment of crisis in episode four this is a point where he has left the straw hat pirates that being the gang searching for the one piece led by Mm -hmm. monkey 
D. Luffy, the lead of the show. And the secondary character you could consider to be Kobe, he is in a moment of crisis in episode four. And you see these moments, and I've charted them, where there is a moment of crisis, and he is figuring out whether he wants to do the right thing and take care of his friends or do the thing that he has been told to do by the Marines, whether to subsume to authority or whether to follow his heart and follow the thing that he thinks is right. And that being taking care of Luffy or at least letting Luffy live, letting Luffy go. And he has been told by Garp that he needs to capture the Straw Hat Pirate. Now, there is this big moment of action. He's trying to figure out what to do. All the while, there are two things happening. And so it ends up feeling a little bit muddy. And it's very poor timing because shortly after the action, all of a sudden, the mood shifts, the beats shift. And if you look at it from a writing perspective, if Kobe's panic happens after his number two or his companion Helmeppo gets knocked out by Ruano Azoro, who is one of the Straw Hat pirates, a lot of names coming at you. And if you bring this character into a moment of meditation after all the action happens, then you're able to really land with it. But everything ends up feeling rushed. Everything ends up feeling a little bit cluttered. Yeah. And that was my main issue in the fourth episode, particularly because I charted the first 10 minutes were all talking. It was all talking in a singular location. And so that to me indicates that there might have been a troubled production because the writing isn't bad. The actual line by line writing, maybe not to my taste, but I can't say it is objectively bad. That's something that I think a lot of bad faith critics do. They will call the writing lazy or bad or cliche. And I think cliches are cliches for a reason. I think that bad writing is only bad when it's not serving character. And in the line-by-line -line writing, I can't knock it for that. But what I can knock it for is not allowing me to really get to know this character of Kobe, despite the fact that we get to spend more time with him, that we get that opportunity. And to me, I feel like that is a missed opportunity. I mean, we watched uh, Logtown today, which was the last sort of arc in the East Blue Saga that wasn't covered yet in this live action show. We started that arc at episode 48 of the One Piece anime, which means everything before that was essentially 47 episodes. And that's what the live action was covering, about 47 episodes of the anime. So it has a lot of ground to cover in basically one hour each episode. And it's actually having to do a lot more because it's introducing characters that weren't there, that weren't focused on. So you're right in the sense that it is a lot to juggle because they're not only juggling like an enormous amount of episodes to adapt, but they're also like introducing elements that were not even covered in those episodes. They were attempting to make an entirely new show that felt vibrant and fresh. Yes. And again, I cannot absolutely knock it for that. That's what I mean. So this is where I disagree with you because I think they did achieve it. You're right, it's not perfect. There's a lot of issues with it, but I think it's definitely a strong step in the right direction because when you compare it to everything else, like The Witcher I just mentioned, Cowboy Bebop, which was a disaster, which was another high-level live-action anime adaptation that happened quite recently and was cancelled after one season. I think that Etcher Oda having complete creative control and 
working with Matt Owens and Stephen Maeda to make this show and his vision and his sort of thought process. I think ultimately it had more pros than cons to it because ultimately it feels true to the themes and the emotional resonance that's present in the general story of the manga and the anime. You just said that it feels like a Pirates of the Caribbean thing. I think it goes deeper than that. It just feels like an adventure and that's at its very core what it is. It's one huge adventure. And an adventure is, again, you mentioned a very expensive thing to invest in. And I think Netflix is doing that because they know they need IP. When we were talking about beef, we were talking about it in the context of Netflix's larger engine. And I asked you whether you thought it was going to get lost. Now, One Piece, on the other hand, I think that this is the kind of show that Netflix is really going to push and was really interested in. Because this kind of thing, regardless of whether it's good, bad, or devastating, bad. It gives them, and there are plenty shows, from what I gather, that have been worse than One Piece. Uh, last year, there was a lot of negative attention towards the Cowboy Bebop adaptation. Yeah. Now, that is a case where Netflix is really interested in creating this IP and they don't care about the quality of it. Now, in the case of One Piece, it seems as if they're trying to course correct, right? Yes, and in the case of the upcoming Avatar The Last Airbender, these are things that they're consistently upping the threshold. Yeah. And when you have something like One Piece, when you have something with a fandom like this or Avatar, you cannot drop the ball in the same way, even if it struggles a little bit, even if it's awkward. Now, the reason why they're doing this in the first place, I think I can target Bella Bajaria, who is the chief content officer at Netflix. There was a piece on her, I believe earlier this year in The New Yorker, where she talks about her focus on what she calls cross-cultural leanings, which is her mixing these Eastern ideas and these Western ideas. So she'll find something from Japan, or she'll find something that is working in another culture. And she'll say, how can I apply this into America? How can I apply this to Great Britain? How can I apply this to Ireland? How can I take these ideas and move them through these channels of Netflix and find the core that makes these stories human? Now, that's why I look at this and I say, we can do more, we can do better. Because I think in terms of pivoting and changing and adapting the story, I think it's valiant. But I think in terms of character-based storytelling, which at its core, I think having a story that is based on dreams, each of these characters has their own dream, right? And they have these backstories and there's these really rich characters like Buggy and you have these great actors like Jeff Ward coming in or the actor who played Garp. Similarly, I'll find his name in a moment. But both of these actors show that there is real talent in this show. And there is also, I think, a deficit in being able to carry that talent on account of the fact that they have to ride through these channels to get where they need to go. Well, going back to Netflix and our theme of the episode, really, both Beef and One Piece were essentially created by Asian creators, Lee Sung Jin and Achiro Oda. The difference between them is, of course, intention. Beef is a show about Asian Americans, specifically Korean Americans. And it's more catered to the reality of living in America as a minority. But One Piece is the complete opposite. It's created by an Asian creator. It's something that was spawned in Japan, but it's catering to the world around Japan. 
to be honest. It's a story that pushes diversity. So because of that, it actually caters itself to the Netflix machine quite well. Because as you said, it's a marriage of East and West. There's nothing more like that than One Piece. Netflix has always been really strong proponents of anime, I think. They were the first ones to really bring it in other than Funimation, of course, and Crunchyroll. But they created like a strong library for it and streaming for, for the longest time now. So I think there are people who are really passionate about it in Netflix. And I think that's where they're allowing it to really flourish. And I think you're right. The core of that is them course correcting. Because in Cowboy Bebop, for instance, which was a real travesty, the creator of Cowboy Bebop, because it wasn't a manga, if I remember correctly, it was purely just an anime. The original creators were not given much say, almost none. And consequently, it seems like what ended up being there just wasn't like the thing that people wanted. And so like a cheap imitation as opposed to the actual thing. And I think here it doesn't feel like a cheap imitation. It just feels a little bit different, not as deep, but it still captures the soul of One Piece, which is its most important thing. I do have to push back on that a little bit. And to do that, I'm going to ask you a question. How does the CGI look to you? When you say it's not a cheap imitation, I mean, literally, it is not cheap. The CGI, no doubt, cost them a lot of money. But do you believe that that was a worthwhile... I mean, in some elements, it is. Luffy's entire power is to stretch, right? His rubber abilities. That didn't look great most of the time. But what did look great was Buggy's ability. That almost felt like a practical effect. And it looked so cool. It could have been a practical effect. Many people have done things like that. And I also want to say that I 100% agree with you. I think the practical looks were really cool. When you had the Fishmen, which are these characters that appear in the final arc of the season, those characters are, honest to God, the best looking things in the entire show. The problem is that is one element of a sea of characters. There are so many characters. There are characters that look like their hair dye is fading as the show moves from one scene to another. There are characters that very much don't look like the actual color of their face matches the dye that they're wearing. It's because they have to be pigeonholed into these character types. And so they look identical to the characters that are in the anime. Truly sort of Eerily so. To me, that isn't really a TV show. Isn't it? A TV show should be, I think, a little bit more than cosplay. And I see this in other aspects, other TV shows that I'm not even going to talk about because we haven't covered them today. It's continually happening, I think. We bring these beloved stories into live action by really, really rampant fan bases because the big problem is it has to feel organic. And to me... Watching this show, the elements, because they just weren't all cohering, didn't feel organic. The Navy, the Marines, they looked completely different. They felt like they were from a totally different show than the Straw Hat Pirates. And each individual Straw Hat Pirate felt a little bit different. I mean, some of them felt like they cohered together. And I think the more you saw them on screen, maybe, the more that you could sort of buy into it. And I think that's a big key, is... Are people going to be buying into it? Me, I have to tell you, I wasn't buying into it. But I think that if 
people were, and I hear a lot of people have, more power to them. There have been many shows, really successful shows, where it has felt like cosplay or it has felt cheap. Doctor Who is the biggest one I can think of. Firefly is another big one I can think of. Stargate is a massive one I can think of. Like, they sell you not so much on the practical or, like, the costume design. They sell you on sort of the fantasy behind the story. Because ultimately, you know, especially Doctor Who, which is the most famous example I can think of, none of the special effects look good. None of them. It's because they are supposed to be a little janky. It's a show that's been around for the longest time. And even when it revived, it, it tried to emulate that old style of storytelling. And that's why I'm pushing back, because One Piece is doing the same. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio, you're right, because it's adapting a cartoon and a comic book, but it is essentially doing the same thing. The big thing, and this is so nebulous, is knowing what a show is, is the big key. If you know what you are, if you know where you are in sort of the totem pole and you work with those things instead of against them, that is where I think I can find that charm. I look at 90s Monster of the Week shows. Those things know what they are. They know their limitations, too. When Buffy the Vampire Slayer first came on the air, you could only have one kill every episode, I think, or in a certain amount of episodes a season, because that was a CGI effect, and it was so early that it was very difficult to be able to accomplish those on that kind of budget. And so they were using a lot of practical effects. They were using practical makeup, and I honestly think the practical makeup was pretty consistent. Now, when you bring it to something like One Piece, this this show is trying to be IP. It needs to be IP for Netflix. Netflix needs IP badly. And One Piece is perfectly suited to do that. So it has that tension. And that's where I fall short because it not only has that sort of thing, it has the Doctor Who television limitations, but it also can't just be a low stakes show. I mean, Doctor Who has managed to gain a reputation due to the fact that it's so old. But when you have something like Stargate, that's a that's a better example, or a half a dozen shows that appeared on the sci-fi channel between the 90s and the 2010s. These shows sometimes knew what they were, but sometimes they were also similarly miscalibrated and very self-serious. And to me, I think the key is that the self-serious has to fall away. And I really hope to see that in future seasons is because they're still course correcting, they have a chance in season two to bring a lot more of the comedy, a lot more of the lightness out. And there was one particular moment in uh, episode seven where Nami is like mutilating herself. And it's oh, that's really a really famous scene. Difficult to watch. And it really felt like it came out of nowhere. And it was, I guarantee you, almost directly pulled from a specific moment. But because it was running so quickly towards it, the context was completely lost. Yeah. And I felt like I had been pulled from one show and was starting to watch another. And that felt like something that continued to happen. 
That does disappoint me to hear that. That is the most iconic moment in the East Blue saga, you know, when that moment happens. And it is a moment that is really strong with emotion. And it was a little jarring for me when I watched it too, because it is an image that is imprinted in my mind from all the way back from childhood. But I think that ultimately it is about taste. Viewers who love One Piece will be much more forgiving about it and not just forgiving, they will laud it. I, for one, lauded it because I was like, wow, one of my favorite moments in manga just happened. It was good. Is it perfect? No, because it's not in a comic book. And I think for you, it's jarring. But I think for others, it's more like, wow, I I can't believe I'm watching this moment. Right. And that's what I was talking about before. This show is ultimately made largely for people who already have that kind of personal experience. This show does more to enrich that experience. Yeah, totally. Here's the thing that I will sort of agree with you on, because I personally am a little worried about future seasons, because One Piece grows in scope and epicness, because they go to different islands and encounter more weird creatures and more insane scenarios and situations there the villains grow stronger and more complex in design and in devil fruit powers again there were only two devil fruit powers shown in the first season there are a lot more and then the budget has to grow then too and you also have to retain the viewers that you have there have been casual viewers that watched season one but I mean, I have expressed my feelings, which have been largely negative. They could grow for many other people in season two. I have not heard many people say the same thing. I think largely the vocal majority have been people who are already interested in One Piece. So those people who are casual fans can catch up with the anime maybe, and then they'll be able to really appreciate future seasons if it's staying the course. But then the question becomes, are they going to be able to hit that same tonal balance in season after season after season? Are they going to be able to get to the six season arc that they want to? Or are they going to have to change and adapt and cater to a broader audience and maybe lose those core fans? Well, here's the thing. It is something that is symbiotic to each other. A One Piece, the live action, when it came out, it was actually really successful. It, it sort of matched Wednesday's numbers. It, it was number one on Netflix for many, many weeks. Yeah. So to call it a hit, I think, is an understatement. It's one of the most seen things on one of the best performing streaming services. And I don't think it's all anime viewers. Statistically speaking, that's impossible. So I think that, you know, a lot of people are interested in it. A lot of people are enjoying it, even viewers that are new viewers, you know, completely to the One Piece world. And I think to them, it just feels refreshing. In a weird way. It is. No, but not even in a weird way, in a real way. And I have to admit, I mean, I was not very nice to it just now, but I have to tell you, it is refreshing. 1000%, it is an interesting, it is a singular vision, and it is a vision that has, it rewards diving deep into it. There's a reason why there are One Piece fans that are willing to watch thousands of episodes. Hundreds of episodes. They're close to the end but there are over a thousand episodes there are over a thousand episodes and they're in the final saga now like the manga is in the final saga the way it works is that the manga is a little bit ahead of the anime and the anime plays catch up the anime just hit the start of the final saga and Echiroda went out of his way to say like yeah i know that we're near the end but the end will probably take three years 
I want to close this conversation off about One Piece with a bit more of a positive note because I have mentioned that there are a lot of things that hit me wrong. I think the balance of comedy particularly, but the other aspect is that there are some really interesting parts and there are some parts that I feel are a little bit lighter. And particularly, I think, when they moved away from source material. From what you gave me on our show notes, you mentioned that the arcs are Romance Dawn, Orange Town, Syrup Village, Barate, and Arlong Park. And Barate was changed a bit from the original anime. Is that true? Yes, it was. Essentially, you remember the scene where Dracul Mihawk, the world's greatest swordsman, is like hunting pirates. And he's like cleaning house relatively quickly. The pirate he does away with effortlessly is supposed to be the main villain of the Barate arc. And that's just cut to just sort of focus on Dracul Mihawk and Sanji. But it's, again, done to just make the Barate section faster, but also include the villains of the next section, which is the fishermen. Well, and interestingly enough, I felt like Barate's movement towards change paid off huge because it was truly the moment when I could watch the show and appreciate it as a work of art. And granted, because maybe also it indulged my tastes a little bit as a viewer because it introduced the chef. What was his name? Sanji. Sanji. And Sanji, alongside his mentor, feel a little bit like the bear, (laughs) which is a show that you and I really like. And so, you know, when you have a sous chef, a really ambitious sous chef. He reminds me very strongly of a character from The Bear. And so when you have that kind of connection, that is a moment where I lock in. I'm able to take experiences from things I've watched and bring it in. And so that in some capacity probably helped, but I can't say it's the only thing because I was also more interested in Luffy, more interested in Nami, more interested in Zoro and their adventures. And I feel like it also maybe was a moment of breath, a moment where we could settle a little bit and have these characters get to know each other. And it felt very singular in that way. And it felt a little bit more character based than a lot of the other arcs. I agree because one of my favorite things about One Piece in general is the idea that the crew members, like the main characters of the Straw Hat crew are so different from each other. And you know, they each have different skills. They're not all fighters, even though this is like an action show. They're not all fighters. Like Usopp and Nami in particular are terrible fighters. And even though Sanji is a fighter, he doesn't fight with his hands. He fights with his feet because he's a cook. You know, he's a chef. His lifeblood is his hands. And each particular island, and I think this is even stronger in the future, but each particular island the crew goes to is very different in terms of flavor. And what I mean by flavor is, you know, in terms of style, in terms of how the island presents itself, and even the village attached to those islands are incredibly specific and different from all the other villains that came before. In the Syrup Village arc, the main villain is sort of like a cat man. The Orange Town uh, villain is a clown, you know, so you were taking those archetypes of very silly cartoon things and then you're just attaching them to almost these Machiavellian type wannabe characters. It's an interesting confluence and it definitely allows for the to be a lot of variety in its material, what it draws 
from an episode by episode basis. And I felt that stronger when we were watching the episodes of the anime, but I felt like it had that capacity. It's just that for the most part in, well, all of the episodes, it felt more like I was watching like a Blues Brothers thing, bringing the gang together versus it being sort of a journey and an adventure and sort of like a more wide scope thing. And that was why I think if I'm going on those terms, this particular arc was my favorite because I think it did it the best. Now that said, did you have a favorite? Yeah, I mean, my favorite one was the buggy arc, which was um, Orange Town. And that has been changed from the manga as well. Like Orange Town itself was a much longer arc than it was presented in the live action. But I just appreciated the character of Buggy. I think his characterization feels the most true from the manga and the anime to this live action. And it felt very terrifying the way he operates in that episode. He feels like a true villain to Luffy in a way that challenges Luffy to grow, which is not very present in a lot of the other arcs because Luffy helps the other characters grow in a lot of ways because they're essentially facing their villains, except Luffy's the one beating them up. Well, and Luffy is a unique force of nature because he is so optimistic that he is often the protagonist changing others around him versus a protagonist that has to grow and change and learn himself. And that's interesting in its own right. I think that's a wonderful subversion of what we typically think of, but it's a very prominent one. And you think of a character like Paddington is one of the more prevalent ones right now. And people love Paddington. The Letterbox kids love Paddington. In terms of the actors, I did want to give a quick shout out to Vincent Regan as Garp. Garp was Luffy's, one of the big villains of Luffy in some ways in this season, but also at the very, very end of the season, we learn that he is the grandfather of Luffy. And that's fascinating. I hear that is also something that was changed a little bit. It happens so late. Because Garp isn't even really in the first saga. He appears in season nine in the anime. So really, really far off. But also Jacob Gibeon as Usopp, again, someone who is literally exactly like scanned and de-digitized and put into the real world. And I think Gibeon is really, I think he understands the material, the best of all of the leads. He really has that sense of wonder and he brings a sense of groundedness. And that is a tough thing to do both of. You have a little bit more liveliness. I mean, obviously the main actor who plays Luffy is going to have a lot of that initially, but it's really hard for me to sort of see what's going on in those eyes of his because I think he is just a little green helming a show with a lot behind it he's still trying to find his footing because luffy is such a difficult character to play he's just optimism he's just full gusto and confidence but a very innocent gusto and confidence so i think it is a very hard character to play because you're essentially playing a character with one prevailing trait whereas jacob gibeon plays usopp I think that's a much easier character to play because he's the weakest character in terms of strength. He's the weakest character in the crew. So he's like surrounds himself with giants. So all he has is his charisma to sort of push him through because in reality, you know, the character is fascinating because he deeply wants to be a pirate, but he's a coward. 
I think a lot of the characters are cast off of looks versus cast off of how they actually act. And so you get these really beautiful young actors that is, I think, you can't understate that popularity there is, I think, because these characters are all very attractive or all of the people playing these characters are all very attractive. You have a little bit of like thirst trapping and TikTok vacation of it. Yeah. And that to me is probably the wrong reason to be watching the show, but it also does allow for people who are not fans to dive in. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the attraction element of it, the thirst trap element of it, because One Piece is quite famous for the fact that there is no romance in it. But people online are shipping yeah. two of these characters super, super hard, right? Yeah. The uh, character of Zoro and Nami. Yeah. Played by Emily Rudd and McKenna. And I agree, I've heard of that too, and I've seen it, but Etcher Oda mandated himself and then mandated uh, Stephen Maeda and Matt Owens not to include romance in the story because he said to himself, look, this story is catered to 13-year-old boys. 13-year-old boys don't like to think about romance. That was what he said to, like, a, in an interview many, many years ago. But that's why Oda is the man, because yeah. he actually understands certain limitations of a genre. I think he's absolutely right. When you're younger, you don't really want to see the romances on screen. Yeah. It's only when you're older that you find those particularly charming. And moving into future seasons, being able to expand these characters as single characters will only do benefit and I will agree. only take away a lot of the things that are holding me back, a lot of the stratifications that the show is suffering under, in my opinion, right now. Quite recently, there's been talk that I watched Gen V quite recently recently, the spin-off show of The Boys, and it created a conversation because there's so much sex in it. And a lot of people have talked against it because I think this is a trend that has happened because of House of the Dragon and Euphoria and The Idol, especially. That was a big, big one where people are like, we just don't want to watch sex anymore on screen. We just want to watch the characters interact without all of this it can be really jarring when you're watching it with a family or watching it in a public setting. So I understand. But I think that, it's just been too much. But, I, it's, but there's also the side where you have a long history of, I mean, in the 50s and 60s, really hard censorship. And coming out of that, it feels really new and really fresh. What happens after? Well, now we're living in it. We're living in a state where pretty much everything is on the table. You can say anything, you can do anything. You know, we as a podcast have decided to bleep out whenever we curse but most podcasts aren't doing that is the fact of the matter i mean you have podcasts like call her daddy that are doing that all the time it's just that i think personally we're looking for something a little bit more serious in our venture and so oh just slightly no shade to call her daddy great podcast <laughs> to listen to them all the time but the fact of the matter is when you are willing to put those limitations on yourself like Oda often it pays off now my one question for you to end this podcast on one piece is we have another season that's being ordered yeah. the first season was incredibly successful and they will do at least one more and I imagine probably at least one more after that because if it was so successful the first time the people who watched the first season will at least check out a bit of the second season and that will be enough so my question for you is you mentioned that it might be more difficult in some ways but are you excited are, is there any one character is there anything interesting about the next season that you're feeling really optimistic about yeah I am ultimately as I said one 
one piece grows in scope and in epicness, the more it tracks on in its story. And I'm excited about that. I think it presents uh, characters that are more complex and more interesting. You just mentioned yourself quite recently in this conversation that the first season feels like the Blues Brothers because it's about bringing the gang back together or bring a gang together. I think moving forward, there is a lot less of that. They start coming into their own. They start working together and start sort of becoming like this found family with each other, which is really exciting. And I think there's a lot more character exploration in future arcs. And more importantly, I think there's a lot more interesting crew members that come into the story as well. I'm particularly excited about the next one. I think it's going to be really hard to introduce him. I'm not going to speak. Okay, you're not going to say the character's name, but you've got a character in mind. Yeah, I've got a character in mind. But I will say there is a pretty famous actress who wants to be part of the show. And the reason she wants to be part of the show is because she loves this character as well. Well, that'll be out in the public. Who is this? Jamie Lee Curtis. Okay. And you think that this character might be a good fit? Yes. I think that she's not going to play him. She's not going to play that character, but it's her favorite character. What she's going to play is the character's mother. And she actually looks like her a little bit. Yeah. Hey, Jamie Lee (laughs) coming through. And she's been on a lot of really interesting programs this year. So I would be more than happy to see her on One Piece season two. And if she does or if she doesn't or if she appears on something new and interesting, you can bet we're going to be talking about it here on Zeitgeist. What about you, Jordan? What are you excited? about i am very excited about this upcoming oscar season we have another episode coming very soon where we were going to be talking about two deathly prestige dramas and if you want to listen to that just make sure that you are following if you like this episode and you listen to the end you've made it congratulations but do make sure to tell your friends about us because we love doing this and we'd love to keep doing this and we'd love to do it for an even wider audience than we already have so on that note i'm going to close things off for the day and i am going to get back to my oscar watching (laughs) and i think we are going to be having some fun here in la this is our first in-person podcast as well so i am really happy to wrap this and i feel like we're definitely on a new track on that note thank you all so much for watching and for listening and for tuning in i have been your co-host jordan conrad and this is my fellow co-host thank you all this is nivel boz and we are signing off thank you so much for listening keep watching keep thinking critically and we'll see you again soon